you're gonna get free this time. You know, alcohol was always a part of my life. So, and it just didn't look odd. I mean, it was just always there. So when I was 15 years old, a sophomore in, in high school, and they handed me that first red solo cup full of keg beer. Yeah. <laughs> I always look back at that moment. I always look back at that moment and think, it didn't even occur to me to say no. Happiness is not a feeling, it's a choice. Love is not a feeling, it's a choice. And you get to choose it and you can re-choose it. You can have that bad day or the traffic was terrible. And then that's gonna color the rest of your day. And you're gonna bring other people down. Like just choose, you can choose it. It's that paradox that I came up with or that I realized the first step is you're powerless over alcohol. Absolutely, a million percent. But guess what? In my sobriety, I've never felt so powerful. That was Roberta Romero on this week's episode of Shreeponia's One Breath Podcast. It was 18 years ago that I met Roberta, and we have done a complete 180 because this time I have the opportunity and the privilege of interviewing her. But 18 years ago, Roberta sat in my living room and interviewed me for a story for one of the local news stations, King 5 in Seattle, Washington. I don't even know where to begin. You know, if you don't mind, I think what I'll do is just share a bit of the story. And then if you have any memories of it, be willing to share. And then we'll get into the meat of the conversation. But you and I met in probably early November of 2006. And I had in October of 2005, I had donated a kidney to my younger sister in Chicago. Two days after the uh, two days after the surgery, I am back in my hotel room, still in Chicago. Turn the TV on, and it's the beginning of the Chicago Marathon, 2005, in Grants Park, and I'm watching it on TV. And they're describing the route, and it it's going right past my hotel. So I'm standing at the window watching these thousands of runners go by, and I have a thought, and that thought is, wow why don't you come back in a year and celebrate your anniversary with Amy and run 2006? Well, I, I had never run any more than a 10 K <laughs> and I weighed 220 pounds. <laughs> so I came back to Bellevue, went to, uh, went to foot zone in Bellevue, got my first pair of running shoes and started to train. And then in 2006, came back and I actually ran the marathon with one of my other sisters and completed it. But while I was in Chicago, a friend of mine called King five and said, Hey, I've got this friend that's in Chicago. He donated a kidney last year. He's running a marathon for his sister. And would it, would it be of interest? And, um, somebody said, I, I don't know who he talked to. I think it was one of the, one of the producers or someone, said, if he, if he finishes the marathon, call us back. <laughs> I would have done it whether you finished or not. And actually, I think that's a better story. <laughs> or oh, just man. <laughs> so, so I did finish. And, um, and then you had, you had reached out and came to my apartment. I was living on Maidenbauer Bay in Bellevue. And then you and your camera guy came to the, 
came to the apartment and did a piece and it was so beautiful. We called my sister, Amy, and talked to her. And, uh, you know, those memories are priceless. Um, they're priceless. And so you, Roberta, have had a, uh, have had a spot in my heart since 2006. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> and, um, so, and at the time you were Roberta Romero, King Five News. <laughs> Over 20 years here at King Five wow. on air. Wow, that's amazing. And then what brings us to today is, um, you know, Sri Ponya uh, One Breath Podcast is primarily about recovery mm -hmm. and mostly the typical thoughts of recovery from drugs and alcohol. But we also get into racism um, you know, intergenerational trauma. There's a lot we're recovering from these days. I mean, we're living in chaotic, traumatic times. And, um, and so there are, you know, our, our approach to healing and recovery is beyond just drugs and alcohol. But what caught my eye this past week was you had posted something on social media regarding your own journey in sobriety and recovery. And I reached out to you and you so graciously said, yeah, let's do this. So would you be willing to share? I, first of all, I so appreciate your willingness as a public person, a public, a persona, right? Particularly in the Northwest that you're so willing and generous to share your story. Um, so how, how did you begin? What brought you to the end of it all? And then the beginning. Absolutely. Of it all? Thank you. I take every opportunity I can to talk about recovery and to uh, try and help remove the stigma and shame that's associated with substance use disorder, which I also, prior to me getting into recovery, had the same prejudices and mm. same attitude towards, oh, you know, moral, it's a moral weakness or that you don't have the willpower to do this, you know, just that whole ignorance until you fall into it. And then like, oh, <laughs> but, you know, I'll start, I, I think you need to have a little, a little context of what my life was like. So I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm a Latina girl. I have an older sister, uh, mom and dad, they stayed together. Um, just so you know, my dad is an active alcoholic and he, he is dead, but he was an active high function alcoholic till the day he died. But you wouldn't know that, you know, back in those days, uh, the image, the keeping the picture perfect so that nobody looking into the looking at us would have any inkling that mm -hmm. there was alcoholism in my house, that there was mm -hmm. domestic violence in my house. No idea. We looked very successful and we you know, I don't ever remember anybody or even my mom saying, don't talk about this. I just knew not to. And quite frankly, back in those days, nobody did. Yeah. Nobody was talking about mental health or alcoholism or abuse. Nobody talked about it. So it was just sort of being part of the um, systemic part of that, just growing, being born and raised in that. And, you know, alcohol was always a part of my life. So it and it just didn't look odd. I mean, it was just always there. So when I was 15 years old, a sophomore in, in high school, and they handed me that first red solo cup full of keg beer. Yeah. <laughs> I always look back at that moment. I always look back at that moment and think it didn't even occur to me to say no. 
Yeah. It didn't even occur <laughs> I, to me. I totally get it. <laughs> I grabbed that red solo cup full of probably Coors Light, could have been blood, <laughs> probably Coors, we're in New Mexico, and chugged it. And then proceeded to out chug everyone there, the boys included. Um, I I don't remember consciously. I, I was I'm always kind of an outgoing personality, so I don't remember thinking, "Wow, I, now I belong. I feel better." I just liked it, you know. I was just like, "Okay, let's do it." I do remember waking up the next morning. I spent the night at my friend's house. I do remember throwing up into a, her little pink trash can next to her bed, and pounding headache, first hangover. And I was out back in the backyard cleaning the trash can and her mom found me and thought it was really funny. Mm. Again, no repercussions, no thoughts, no like, here's this 15 year old girl, obviously hungover, obviously trying to deal with it. Thought it was hilarious. So that was the beginning. I was always a binge drinker. So I, and I had a really high tolerance. So, you know, the evolution, all those alcoholics, <laughs> the generationalists had involved me to this very, uh, you know, great little alcoholic. Yeah, there. I think I think evolution is involved because each generation seems to get a little bit more skilled. <laughs> right. Livers last a little longer. You know? <laughs> so just binge drink, you know, and again, it didn't look odd. Everybody was doing it. There was, you know, this was the, uh, let's see, I graduated in 19... 82 hello but in those days there was no education around it oh i'm sorry just say no <laughs> whatever that meant just say no had come out um but no, nobody really talked about it or thought about it or questioned it and, and i got i got busted a couple of times no repercussions or consequences whatsoever nothing because i was a good girl you know i was following the rules you know the grades and the extracurricular I went to college new mexico state and again, it ramped up, obviously. I, uh, I had a fake ID. I, and, and actually, I went to New Mexico State, which bordered the state of Texas. And the drinking age at that time in Texas was still 19. <laughs> and there was a bar right on the border of New Mexico and Texas, about 20 miles from my college. So the 19-year-olds would go in on the Texas side, and everybody else would go in on the New Mexico side. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. We also drive up liquor stores back then, too. So, yeah, so just binge drank and I was still successful. I was still able to do this, follow the game. You know, um, I got my first television reporting job before I even graduated from college in El Paso, Texas. Uh, so starting in El Paso, the stress of this job is quite high, by the way. And the pay is quite low. People think that, like, oh, you're on TV. You and Oprah are making the same money here. I'm like, no, I could have made more as a sales clerk at Dillard's department store, which I was doing at the time, than as I than in my career with a college degree at the time. But you can ramp up fast, you know. So got my experience there. I actually met my husband there. Uh and uh I me I, I wanted to get out of out of El Paso as fast as I could. So within nine months, I was in my hometown of Albuquerque. I actually worked in a bureau for a year, Farmington, and I covered the four states the four corners for uh, colorado oh. new mexico utah and arizona mm -hmm. uh and when i first started covering indigenous stories navajo nation was my beat um so a year there and then i moved to albuquerque and again i'm still binge drinking still binge drinking but managing everything and again not thinking anything's odd about the binge drinking um fast forward so i'm in albuquerque uh working a very high job my husband was also in the business so he was working in it he was at the cbs i was at the nbc and i remember getting mad at some my boss i'm like i'll show you i'll get a job in the big city 
And a friend of mine got a job in Seattle at King Five. And he kept saying, send a tape. I'm like, no, no, no I'm in my hometown. And I sent a tape and I, darn it, they hired me. Wow. I wasn't prepared for that. I had never said the word Seattle out loud in my life. The news director at the time didn't fly us out to Seattle. He flew us out to Dallas because he wanted the junket. So when we drove into Seattle, that was my first look, landed at King Five, which is a, just, you know, across the country, King Five is known for its stellar journalism. Mm. And that goes back to Dorothy Bullitt and to the journalists way before me who built this incredible legacy. Mm -hmm. But around the country, other newsrooms really respect King Five as well. And I, I believe we've kept that that bar high, I you know, so... So it landed here again. My husband worked at Como, the ABC affiliate. I'm here at King and, you know, we're going around. He was a sports anchor. We're just doing it. Um, and I will tell you that. So, again, still binge drinking. I got pregnant, stopped drinking for my first child. Second pregnancy. So I have a three-year-old son. I met my, 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 I met my ultrasound. And the lady very casually said, did you know you're having twins? Oh. Yeah. Oh. No family here. I've got a three-year-old. We're now having twin daughters, fraternal twin daughters. And after they were born, I'm sure I had postpartum depression, but I will never, that was a component of my alcoholism, but that, and that kicked it off into the next level. But alcoholism is and was my destiny, whatever the trigger was or whatever the kickoff was. I, you know, there can be lots of stuff and, and a lot of people want to blame something or they want to look at it like I wouldn't have done this if if that hadn't happened here. Nope. It was my destiny. So postpartum depression. I have a three year old. I have infant twins. I went part time at my job. So I lost my ego around that. And I was overwhelmed and exhausted and scared. And of course, I drank red wine at the end of the day. Of course. And then I always wonder when the first of all, this feral part of my brain in the deep, dark recesses of it said, this looks odd. You have to start hiding it. Your husband's going to see this. And I don't remember consciously thinking it, but I remember starting to hide it. Mm. Like buying two bottles and having one bottle out for us, a red wine, but I'm also drinking from the second one. Mm. Drinking before he got home. Uh, and then it went into the deep dive where, you know, I am buying bottles of wine, hiding them in my, uh, in my car, hiding them in my closet. I was not a social drinker. I sat in my house by myself and drank red wine out of a coffee cup. It was very sad, very lonely. You know, I was keeping up this image of television reporter on this side and mom and wife and just drinking it every day, just every day. And the tipping point of like, what, what was the tipping point that just click flipped me into that alcoholism? I don't know. Yeah. I just I, fell into it. You know, you, you became what I, what I've heard termed and, and this, this was me too. I, I was just a daily binge drinker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I drank, drank till I passed out, you know? Yeah. So I that progression, that progression yeah. is amazing. It really is. It was amazing, you know, and then I, I will say that I, we call this the dance. My husband and I were like, he would find the empty bottles or he knew you can't hide being drunk, you know? So I would try to like balance it. Like they okay, only have a little bit or, or, you know, when he walks in the door, so he doesn't know this much, you know, those lies that you tell yourself, like when you do those little, I used to go those things, like, am I an alcoholic? And you, you do like, it's like 20 questions. And first of all, my head said, well, I'm not because I didn't do all 20 of them. 
like not knowing that like if you're if you're doing three if you're checking three you're got a serious problem i'm like oh i i'm still not you know skydiving and drinking okay so i'm definitely not, not calling you know whatever excuse and um uh i just remember he would so he would he would come home he would try you know he would get try with love like okay please don't drink alone okay of course and of course i would then you get angry you have to go to a 12-step meeting and i go okay you know and just this whole you know things would get better you know how it is you you if you're living with somebody it's a family disease you all fall into that black hole my children were very young but my husband and i were just kind of and um shockingly i call my husband abnormally normal he was supposed to be my codependent <laughs> Just like my father and mother, my mother was a codependent to sustain this high function alcoholic. You need a codependent if you want to do it as a couple. And my husband was not going to play that game. He did, though, for about five years. So about four and a half years, we did the codependency. And, you know, he would say that. So I remember going to my first AA 12 step meeting, going to my mm -hmm. first 12 step meeting. Mm -hmm. And if you're from this area, if I say the word Fremont, Mm. Most people know what that means. It's a rough and tumble 12 step meeting. Mm -hmm. I just looked to see that it was at noon and it was near where I lived. That's all I cared about. I got, took my shower, put my full makeup on, put on a suit and walked into Fremont. <laughs> and that's when my, <laughs> I just sat in the corner and cried. <laughs> oh, you know, it's, forgive me for laughing, but you Everybody know, as, does. as you and I know, it, it is so absurd. Our, where this takes us is so absurd in the way we begin to think. It's so absurd that that after you've been sober for a while, <laughs> the the only the only response is to say, yeah, you 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 laugh and and you're thinking, yeah, me too, you know? <laughs> yes, oh. exactly. And, and that probably bought me another few years because that's when my prejudice of like, well, I don't look like these people, you know, like you always want that, that I'm better than or less than, you know, that well, and you picked a perfect, you picked a perfect meeting in Seattle to, to have your, you know, I, I am not like these people. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I, my, I have the softest spot for that meeting, that meeting in particular, because I sat in a corner and cried. Uh, the guy who was leading, it was actually kind of mad at me. I could tell you could see, like, I was not, you know, like he was, you know, whatever. But at the end of it, two women came up to me and they asked me if I had a big book. I did not know what that meant. And they said, oh, this is a 12-step book. And, and and they gave me one uh, for free, you know, which I go, oh, you know, which is wow. And I took that. Um, I don't know where I put it. I had two or three of them that people had given to me. And, you know, you just want to, I couldn't face it yet. Um, I did find a different, like I went to a, a, another meeting in Ballard, St. Paul's. It's very popular in this area. And I don't know who our audience is, but it, it's at a church and they kind of have them all day. And it was a women's only and it was very sweet. Uh, but again, it was just so much. It was, and, and I, I always like to take people to 12 step meetings because I was so scared already and filled with shame and guilt. And then I walked in that meeting and I didn't know any of the rules and, and, and like you're supposed to, you, you, they used to in the old days pass around a sheet and you were supposed to put your sober date on it. And I saw a birth date. So I put one, uh, 323, 1964, <laughs> which is very funny now. <laughs> 
but I, I wish somebody would have been, you know, just a little guy. Cause that again, so then I got, you know, I, I kept moving out. I, I, I didn't feel, I didn't know how to feel welcomed. I didn't know how to look at it in a different way. Cause I was so filled with shame. Um, so, you know, uh, I was at a meeting, uh, at night and, uh, to be perfectly frank, I'd had a couple of glasses of wine before I went to the meeting as many of us who are struggling do. And it was an all women's meeting. It was very packed. It was at a woman's apartment. And this woman came up to me. She was very angry. She's like, cause she could tell I'd been drinking. She's like, have you heard of residence 12? And I said, no. And it's an all women's treatment center in Kirkland, Washington. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh no, oh no, the gig is up. Because I knew that I wouldn't be able to go to a co-ed treatment center because of my trauma around men and domestic violence. And I didn't think there was any such thing as a gender specific treatment center. Nor was it just literally across the lake for me. Like it wasn't going to be hugely expensive. It wasn't going to, you know, my insurance covered it. So I did an, I went there and I did an assessment. I'd done a number of assessments, you know, it was just, you know what that's like, just the denial. Went there, did an assessment. And for the first time, I was a hundred percent honest. That was in October. My sober date is January 2nd. Mm. (laughs) So I just want you to look at the months there. Because I was like, I had small children and I didn't want to ruin the holidays for them. Can I tell you how great those holidays were? <laughs> I'm I'm sure they were stellar. Just lovely. Oh. Yeah. And so my last drink was on January 1st and I am so grateful. It was horrible. Um, we had this one bottle of good wine and I'm using air quotes for those of us who can't see this. I'm using air quotes of good wine. I never touched it, never touch it. And all I thought to myself is I'm never going to drink again. I'm drinking that wine. So I sent my husband out on some stupid errand and I chugged the good wine. And then we had friends come over and we were doing a game night and they brought wine. So I'm drinking on top of that. The night ended with me in the bathroom, throwing up, crying, my husband pounding on the door. I believe my children were asleep. You know, I, I don't know. Mm. Um, and that is my last drink. And I'm so grateful for it because mm. I cannot lie to myself. I am an alcoholic. Mm. I cannot go back and go, you know, it wasn't that bad. You know, I've had X amount of time sober. I think I can try it again. Yeah. I, I think I can. I got this. No, I know. I am a raging alcoholic. The second you put that alcohol in my, in my bloodstream. Yeah. So I'm grateful that it was terrible. Uh, then I went to treatment and luckily uh, because of, I feel it's because of the way I was raised and the era that I was raised in, I'm a rule follower. And guess what? They said, find a 12 step meeting. And I did. I found a 12 step meeting that met seven days a week at 7am. It's called water's edge. It's over by Guestworks park. And it was a co-ed meeting shocking. And I'm so grateful that it was co-ed because I hadn't, didn't know much about men. I didn't have a brother. I had one older sister. I was like, men have feelings. You're insecure. You're scared. (laughs) I didn't know. (laughs) And so I got a lot of wisdom from, from the men in that room as well. And then I went every day. The only times I missed would be vacation or if I was sick. And I went every day for years because I loved it. Yeah. Because I'm not sitting in that 12 step meeting crying. I always tell people we're not sitting around crying. <laughs> Boo, I can't drink anymore. 
that's kind of almost the last thing we talk about unless there's a first step person coming in. It's a lot like, you know what? My husband is driving me up the wall and I don't quite know how to deal with this or what's your role in it or how do you get your ego out of the way? It's a spiritual thing for me. Mm. Um, and it's a very basic thing. It's very simple. I needed those 12 steps. I needed to see something where I could just say, okay, so what do I need to do today? Because I, the anxiety inside of me, the low self-esteem, the shame and the guilt, I, I just give me the little things. I can follow one, two, three, four, to up to 12. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, it's just basically like one or two or three, you know, uh, don't drink today, always. Mm -hmm. For me, it's a spiritual program. So I connect with, uh, with, with, for me, meditation and prayer and, um, and then do the next right indicated thing, just really simple steps. That's it. And then for me, the key is service work. Hmm. Hence why I'm here talking to you. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, I had a very, very similar experience. I, I just came to that moment in time where I couldn't do it anymore. And then, you know, a while later, I remember reading in some of the 12-step literature, we had to fully concede to our innermost self. And when I read that, it was like a get out of jail, finally, because I... Because even, you know, I sat in my first AA meeting, you know, convinced after 15 years that I, it was probably the right place for me to be that mm -hmm. Saturday morning. Yeah. And I remember looking up on the wall and they have the big poster with the steps and the traditions. And I remember reading the third tradition saying the only requirement for membership in this particular 12 step program is the desire to stop drinking. And, and my crazy alcoholic brain didn't go, oh, thank God, that's all. But my alcoholic brain went to, holy crap, I only have to want to stop. Yeah. Maybe I could still drink when I traveled for business. Maybe I could still drink, you know, dot, dot, dot. And I don't know how many iterations of that maybe you could still drink occurred. But at, at you know, uh, I, I stopped and I thought, I'm screwed. Yeah. I, there's no way out for me. I I know I need to be sitting in this chair and I'm having these thoughts. What the hell am I going to do? And there was a gentleman in that meeting that shared and he began to share and he was sharing his early sobriety and sharing the word. He was speaking the words out loud that were going on in, in my head. Yeah. That had happened to him. And it just absolutely brought me to that place of, oh, wow, I'm not the only one having these thoughts and this guy's sober. So it brought me through to, you know, hanging around long enough to read that we had to fully concede to our innermost self. And wow. just like you, Roberta, I, 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 I knew I couldn't it, even 12 years and change. I don't have thoughts of, oh, I've been sober for 12 years. Maybe I could drink again, you know, it, that, that question has been settled. And I'm so grateful for that because there's so much freedom on the other side of that, that quandary of trying to, well, maybe I, maybe, well, maybe. So, you know, you, you mentioned service work and, and the fact that we're sitting here having that this conversation as a result of that locally, 
Um, do you stay still engaged with one of the 12 step programs actively? And then, you know, I, I know you speak occasionally. Um, I've had friends. In fact, there was a women's gathering. I don't know how many years ago that you were invited to speak and you shared your story. And I had a friend call me and say, wow, I just heard the most amazing share of sobriety. And, um, you know, how, how has that, how has that been for you to be able to give what what you've been given? I'll tell you when I left treatment, they I love being a secret and secrets will destroy me. Secrets and resentment are my two paths back. And so they said I need to be honest. And um for me now at this point. I am very open about my recovery. If you know me, you know I'm in recovery. Mm -hmm. And I'm very careful to say 12 steps and not uh, the other yeah. acronym because yeah. that can get us in trouble. And while right. that is the basis of my sobriety, there are lots of ways to get sober. I'm never going to judge anybody on how or what they're doing. That's what worked for me. But with that, I also feel if we don't start talking about this, actually, we are. We're losing a generation. Mm -hmm. Trust me. There was no uh, heroin or fentanyl when I was in high school. There was no social anxiety or, 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 or social media on top of the anxiety, the depression post-COVID. And then we're trying to tell these uh, young people uh, to get sober. Um, it, it's just it's just not working. There, there, there's that thought that, first of all, we have to start talking about it because we're losing a generation. But also what I learned is that a lot of uh, laws and 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 money and 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 funding is being decided by people who don't have a clue what substance use disorder is about yeah. or what it's like to do it. And if I'm not speaking up and saying no, the money should not be going to buy yellow umbrellas. It should be going to treatment centers, to detox facilities. You know, we have hardly any detox facilities in this state. Um, we, we don't have the, the treatment centers. It's like, you know, drinking from a fire hose. There's so many to choose from. And a lot of them are for profit. And I'm not saying they're good or bad, but they're very expensive. And a lot of them don't take insurance. And I'm sorry to say residence 12, I actually left King five and I went and worked at residence 12 hmm. and it was a privilege to work there. And we ended up closing. We were a nonprofit. Mm. We're like the only gender specific nonprofit in the area, but we just could not compete with the for profits that had moved into the area. We just couldn't. And, you know, people don't really, I, I was doing fundraising for them. And, you know, people love to give money to pets and kids. Uh, alcoholics, not so much. <laughs> so when you're a nonprofit, trying to raise money, you know, and plus people wanted guarantees, especially if you don't understand this disease. Okay. If my person goes to this treatment center, can you guarantee that they'll be sober for the rest mm. of their lives? I'm like, no, absolutely not. But I can guarantee this. I can guarantee that we're building a foundation for them mm -hmm. so that the fall, if it happens, a relapse won't be as deep or that they'll know where to go for help or that we can help catch. And by the way, you need to help too. What people don't realize is that, and they don't, and my husband would be the first to tell you, he thought I was going to go to treatment and get fixed, and then he could live his life over here. Oops, you're broken too, buddy, with mm -hmm. his own trauma, his own mm -hmm. way he was raised, you know, so we had to grow up together. And it took him longer, you know, because I had the dire consequences right in front of me. It took him a long time to like realize that uh, he needs help too. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, um, so just trying to raise the awareness and also making sure that the funding decisions that are being made around this disease, that we have people who, who have lived experience who are advocating for it, either in Olympia, national level, state level, local level, cities, whatever, counties. And then also just removing the shame and stigma. I was a secret for so long and so shame, full of shame. I will never be that way again. Mm. And if you have judgment for me, I'm like, I don't want to hang out with you. First of all, you shouldn't want to hang out with me when I was drinking. <laughs> Why aren't you inviting me all to your parties? I am the designated driver and I will remember everything that happened. <laughs> you know? People always ask, they get very uncomfortable around me when they find out I'm in recovery or that I don't drink. Well, do you mind if other people drink around you? I absolutely don't mind. And, and I, I don't go to bars, um, but I'll go to restaurants and there are bars there and stuff. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'm around or there might be a party and I'll go to it. That doesn't bother me. I'm the one with the problem, not you. Mm -hmm. I'm the one with the problem. Now, it's a slippery slope. When I was first sober, I wouldn't have dreamt of going to into those social, social situations at all. It took me a while before I felt strong enough or face self, safe enough to go into some of those spaces that would have been a trigger for me. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, so I think that there's a lot of reasons why I'm very open about this. Um, yeah. If somebody had cancer... You know, they, they would have brought casseroles to my husband if I had been diagnosed with cast, with with cancer. Uh, they would have rallied around me. I'd have had visits, you, you know, but it was alcoholism. So we kept it very quiet and shame-based. No more. No yeah. more. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've, I feel strongly, uh, exactly, that the more it can be in the public domain and discussed and open, um. It, it 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 it's gonna it's gonna facilitate other people being willing to uh to say wow hmm she's willing he's willing to share this maybe there isn't maybe there isn't the the well the incomprehensible demoralization is another term that we become very familiar with particularly in late stage yeah. uh that 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 incomprehensible demoralization for me ended up being my gift yeah it it was that it was that something like something damn well better change something has to change and it became the gift that that brought me to making my first phone call to a friend of mine that I had heard of God and sober and, you know, and, and it was because I had heard him share his story in a, in a, in a, like a work after work setting at a bar, he, he had gotten enough sobriety that he was able to join us and not drink. And I remember somebody asking him, Ed, of anybody at this table, why the hell aren't you drinking? And he you know, didn't go on and on, but he was able to share his story. Now, I didn't get sober right away, but I knew who to call when I reached that moment, my own moment of, wow, I, I just can't go on. And I called him and he was, he led me for the first five years of my sobriety as my, as my 12 step sponsor. I love that. So I owe that guy my life, you know? And I'm sure you are sponsoring people and they feel the same way about you. 
Yeah, you know, this, I, this yeah. whole circle. Yeah, you had spoken earlier when you said that that person was telling your story. Connection is the key to recovery, mm-hmm. and also the knowledge of. I'm so garden variety. Like I thought I was the only one that had these thoughts. Yeah. Like, you were the only one hiding your alcoholism. <laughs> uh, everybody did. You know, like I think, I, you know, that's special. It's the ego too. You know, it's alcohol was my symptom. The, 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 the problem was my anxiety and low self-esteem and ego, my ego, that egomaniacs with low self-esteem. That's what they call it. And it was spot on for me. Also, the theory that I that people really helped, I I think really helped me is that the theory is, is that your emotional maturity stops the year you start drinking. Mm-hmm. So there I was, a 39-year-old mother of three with a career, husband, children, whatever. But in my head, I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And that's how I responded to life as a 15-year-old. Even though I was 39 years old, because my maturity had my emotional maturity was stunted. Yeah. So that helped me like, you know, yes. So that, so that was really helpful for me to be able to kind of put it into those terms. Cause you know, it was all my fault. I have weak moral character. I, you know, I just can't do this or I'm so dumb. You know, those words, those, that's terrible negative self-talk that I would tell myself, you know, why can't you just stop? And then beating myself up over it. Like every day, starting my day off, I'm not going to drink today. Every day drinking, you know, Mm -hmm. that's, demoralization just that circle on and on and then another year passes and then another year passes mm-hmm. you know it goes faster uh it goes fast that time yeah yeah that's um i had a thought and it, and it just it, it scattered so <laughs> i feel i feel oh. for you i feel oh. i'm the same way <laughs> yeah yeah just one of the other things about that that aspect of maturity, um, I I totally agree. And one of the, oh one of the things that came to mind was that that discipline. Like, you know, why can't you just? I can remember having someone very close to me say, "Why can't you just have one or two? Why can't you do that? You just you know you're despicable. It's you know." Yeah. And I I didn't have an answer at the time, had no answer, but it wasn't for lack of self-will. When I met you, Roberta, I ran my first marathon drunk. I ran wow. 10, I trained for nine more marathons while I was still drinking. Wow. It wasn't self-will. Yeah. I had all the, I had the discipline. I, you know, I ran, I was running a business when I met you. I, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't self-will. It there is something that is occurring that first of all, we have to come to that place of, wow, I can't keep doing this. Where the hell am I going to go to get help? Mm -hmm. But that moment that we reach out for help, thank God Mm. that there, that there usually is someone that can speak to us without that shame you know, that they can say, yeah, me too. And, and help reset our psychology around what has been occurring. You know, I'll tell you that that was, that's another reason why I'm very open about this. In 2003, when I was looking for treatment and I'm a reporter, a trained reporter, granted the internet was very new back then. I couldn't find anything. It was so hard 
to try and find. And then now in 2024, um, there's so much. And how do I find it? And, and what is high quality and what is affordable, you know, and, and all that stuff. So I also do that because I can help. And I had no one to, I looked around the newsroom or around my neighborhood. There wasn't one person I could have said, hey, can you help me? Or you've done this because it, even if they were in recovery, I didn't know it. And then after I got sober, there were a few people at work or in my neighborhood like, oh, I'm sober too. I'm like, oh, where were you? <laughs> so I'm very open about it because if you need help, yeah. I can help. Yeah. I can help. You know? Well, I'm great. I'm grateful because there is uh, our nonprofit is part of a, of a, uh, a coalition down here called Central Oregon Health Council. And I'm, I'm, my wife and I are both on uh, two different work groups within that regarding substance use disorder. The other thing that's occurring that's becoming very active is peer support specialists. You know, that, that peer support in the, you, you raised this, you mentioned this earlier that there are people making funding decisions and spending tax dollars that have, don't have a freaking clue about, about underlying causes and conditions. And they have no clue where effective use of dollars are going to, are going to be able to be used. But in this move there, and there is a movement for people with lived experience, even if you don't have a clinical degree, that that we get to have a voice, we get to be able to speak into higher levels of decision making, and also be in the care of and walking with people that are looking for uh, support in their own recovery journey. Oh boy. So after Residence 12 closed, I went and worked for Pure Seattle, which is an LGBTQ nonprofit here, but we are now called Pure Washington. And we have Pure Spokane, Pure Olympia, Pure Kent. Uh, we've got Federal Way Diversion Program, and we also have Peer Workforce Development. Peer to peer, people with lived experience who are helping other people. And all of these different locations have different specialties, like Pure Seattle's LGBTQ on Capitol Hill, Pure Kent is Drug Diversion Court. Pure Olympia is Indigenous and Active Military. Pure Spokane is Veterans and Homeless or Unhoused. Mm. But I am passionate about peer-to-peer -peer, yeah. uh, uh, workers and also making sure that they're getting paid well. That, yes, obviously we need people with certain, you know, we want them to be viable and have certified certifications around it, but it doesn't necessarily have to be all of that education that you need for people who are in the treatment recovery world. First of all, they're very hard to find. They're, they're, people aren't going into that career. And some of these people don't have the wherewithal or just the education around that. That's not where they, that's not their specialty. But man, do they have this unbelievable lived experience and can reach people mm -hmm. and change the course of their life because of mm -hmm. the lived matched experience hugely. And quite frankly, a lot of people, when we talk about the unhoused, they have been so burned by bureaucracies and by healthcare systems. When they find our people, our peers, our peer-to-peer -peer specialists, mm -hmm. and they find somebody they can trust implicitly, that immediate trust, that's what's going to change the narrative. That's what's going to move the needle as far as I'm concerned. So I love that you're a peer-to-peer -peer specialist. Mm -hmm. I love that that's the work you're doing, but we have to educate people around it mm -hmm. and the value around it. They want us to do it for free, which is fine. I absolutely do it for free with my 12 step meetings, mm -hmm. but this is a career path as well. And they should be paid livable wages. 
And it could really make a difference in this community. It's this untapped market of people, and, and quite frankly, people who might have um, arrest records, who can't get hired in other places, you know, or 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 for whatever reasons, or like, you know, they're, they're thrown away or like, oh, they were an alcoholic for so many years, they can't do anything. No way. There's just so much, yeah. so much uh, potential here that we're wasting. Yeah, but, the, but there's a movement, like you said. There's a movement happening. There, and there is a movement. For it. Yeah, and it's it it really is, and it's grassroots, and it's powerful. It is. And you know the the founders of our lineage, you know that that tradition that you and I have participated in, in twelve step, they knew. Uh, they they each of those founders had gone to professionals, had gone to the hospitals for trying to get sober, trying to dry out, trying to, and nothing worked. And they, they came upon that principle of one alcoholic to another, one drug addict to another, um, you know, and other substances and destructive behaviors, one to another, that 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 lived experience, it that's that's what did it for me. I had lots. Of, I I was seeing the therapist. I was doing trying to figure <laughs> shit out, right? And I there there wasn't anything that was working for me. I sat down and had my first honest conversation with another alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Boom, changed it. Changed my life forever. I'm going to blow your mind now. <laughs> And I'm going to hopefully engage your audience in this as well, because peer workforce development, we, the, our, our employees now, I, I sit on the board still, they are now going to like the Mason County Sheriff's Office reached out to peer workforce development and said, hey, would you please train us? And now the officers, they, so mm-hmm. because the highest suicide ideation and highest suicide rate, guess what, is among police officers. Yeah. Substance use disorder among police officers, they are in the thick of it. I have a lot of empathy because I'm a reporter and I'm standing shoulder to shoulder. I see what's happening out there. And there's nothing, there's no, you know, there's, and a lot of them are ex-military, which is also high suicide rates. So there, there's no support. And again, and then just the, the, the cliche of men asking for help or talking about their issues. So they came in and they did peer-to-peer training with these sheriff's deputies so they can keep an eye out for each other and talk to each other and have a safe space for it. We went to Walla Walla and we talked to not only the inmates, but the prison guards right. to talk about this and bring uh, peer-to-peer knowledge and, and and education and conversation points to these groups as well. I mean, it's so much more. So like, you know, a guard is going to get, I know what you're talking about because I've lived that experience too, mm-hmm. whether you're an alcoholic or a police officer or whatever, if you can match those people up, you can start talking about it and breaking the cycle Yeah, the cycle of abuse and isolation or, mm-hmm. and whatever else is going on. So this is transferable everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's transferable everywhere. I'm, I'm trying to work with some teens right now at a nonprofit called Bridges and our teens, but so such a hard group to try and get sober because they have nothing to lose. I had a lot to lose. You had a lot to lose. You, you know, so there was, there was risk there for us, but when you're 15, 16, I wouldn't have stopped. I I, I wouldn't have at that age, you know, but then again, there was no education around it. We now know better, you know, but reaching kids and we're, we're, we're training the kids to work with each other 
at Recovery mm -hmm. High School, and then Bridges is kind of an after-school program, so that they can start learning this language and and learning how to identify and and support each other. Yeah. So there are things out there. People get so hopeless, and there's so much hope out there. Yeah, one of the things that comes to mind, Roberta, is for those that may be listening, of you know. Um, I would often, when I would call my sponsor early on, I would say, man, thank you. I hate bothering you, but, you know, thank you so much. And and he he way more than once said, Greg, there will come a day when you're on the other side of this phone call and you're going to realize this is not an inconvenience. Mm -hmm. This is this is the the highest point of my day mm -hmm. when you call. And we have the opportunity. And I, I didn't really understand that at the time. I do now. But the reason I bring it up is for those people that may feel like I don't want to be an imposition. Mm -hmm. I, my, my invitation is set that thought aside and pick up the phone because the person on the other end that will be able to have the conversation with you will be so gifted by it that it's not an inconvenience or an imposition to be on the receiving end of a phone call, you know? So I'm hoping that there are, there's someone listening that's on that, that that's at that, what you and I would refer to as the jumping off point yep. <laughs> that they're at that jumping off point and they, they choose to pick the phone up and give someone a call. And there are two components to it. Mm -hmm. They're so hard. They are by far they were by far the hardest things I had to do. Ask for help. And there's the second part. Accepting the help. I asked for help a lot, but I never accepted it until I got to that point where I needed to. And I love what you just said about, you know, uh, that bothering because I actually talk it through with them. I go, "Okay, I'm asking you to call me." And I go, "And your first thought is going to be, I don't want to bother her. Oh, she's so busy. I am not busy. You are not bothering me." Take that out. Take that out of the conversation. Sometimes I have to actually use the words because I know that's how my brain goes too. Mm -hmm. I don't want to bother them mm -hmm. because honestly, I don't want to talk. I, I, that they, they call it the uh, hundred pound phone, you know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. I call my sponsor. I'm like, please don't pick up. Please don't pick up. Let me leave. A <laughs> oh, hi. You know, being intimate with someone is I hard know. work. Yeah. Yeah. Being vulnerable is hard. <laughs> you know? Yeah. In, into so me. Yeah, intimacy is. I've heard the definition of in. It's it. It means into me see, and you know that takes a long time to arrive at that place where my heart and my mind and my ego, my ego is diminished enough, and my heart is big enough that I that I'm that I'm willing to say, yeah, go ahead and take a look. I I I really want you to see me. Um, that you know, the, the, that, that's a, a beautiful place to arrive at, but it takes some like relationship building, trust building, knowing that, that the person you're speaking with or the group you're in is a safe place, you know, that was really beautiful. I'm going to think about that all day. And it's going to come to me now. Like, you know, you get triggers for like bad things, but now I'm going to get triggers. Every time I hear the word intimacy, I'm going to think of you and you saying into me, see, I've never heard that before. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been in a lot of meetings. So thank you. <laughs> 
isn't that funny? Now I have new triggers. Like they don't all have to be negative. Right. Yeah. <laughs> funny how that works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They can be great triggers as yeah. well. Um, but the point I was going to make, so uh, opening up, seeing now my thought uh, went because it was so powerful. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just an interesting world when you can, oh, what I was going to say is when I am open, when I tell people I'm in recovery, it changes everything, like everything, like immediate, like in the grocery store line, all of a sudden we're not talking about the weather or what kind of car you drive. We're talking about, wow, my child, uh, you know, suffers from this or, oh, I have my, my dad or me or, or, oh my gosh, how does that, you know, like, or I'm struggling. Like all of a sudden you're talking on a real level. Like I have no more time. I am old and I love it. I have X amount of time left. I really do. Yeah. You know, like there is a finite time here. I cannot waste it. I'm not going to waste it. I don't want to talk about shopping or you know, I'll, okay, I'll listen about your vacation, but okay. But you know, like, I, I just, I want to talk about real things with real people who really care. Mm-hmm. And I want to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, you know, thank God that we do get to have our sense of humor and our view of life return that, that, that gives us access to that laughter yes. because there's so much healing in it. And, uh, you know, the Buddha, the reason I hear you, the passion in your heart and in your voice, Roberta, regarding, I don't have time. Like, let's get down to what's real because there are people suffering, you know, and the Buddha, the Buddha came and said, I came to teach two things. I came to teach suffering and the end of suffering. Mm -hmm. And it's that simple. And when we're caught in any type of addiction, any type of destructive patterns that we can't break out of on our own, there is the end of it. And and you mentioned it earlier. The end, the beginning of the end of it often is connection. Finding that other person with lived experience that won't give you advice, but they sure have a, a, a ton of experience, strength, and hope that they can begin to share with you if you're willing. So yeah, just yeah what a what a i i totally agree it's that there's something that shifts in our hearts of i don't have time for <laughs> for your new tesla and yeah. you know i i just i don't have time for it anymore <laughs> been there done that yeah. you know <laughs> that was you know so early 2000s man it's 2023 we've got we've got shit going on in the world that we you know need to begin to pay attention to and be sober enough that we can walk as a solution and a contribution to what's going on so i think about those words happy joyous and free Mm-hmm. which are words I never thought of in my life prior to um, my sobriety because everything was in the future. I'll, I'll be happy. F- Once I get this, I'm going to be happy. Once I get that, I'm going to be happy. Once this happens, I'm going to be happy. And then living in my past, well, I remember that ex-boyfriend. I'm going to say this to him, you know, <laughs> and never living in the present in this now moment, which is hard. You know, it's a conscious choice to live in the now, this moment, because that's all we have. 
you know, but it's an, it's an effort and now it comes easier, but it's still, you know, I can future trip or go back into that past, but just living right here in those words of happy, joyous, and free, which are like, wow, rocketed into the fourth dimension, people let's go, you know? And, um, and I am for the most part because I choose it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always tell people happiness is not a feeling. It's a choice. Love is not a feeling. It's a choice mm-hmm. and you get to choose it and you can re-choose it. You can have that bad day or the traffic was terrible. And then that's going to color the rest of your day. And you're going to bring other people down. Like just choose. You can choose it. It's that paradox that I came up with or that I realized the first step is you're powerless over alcohol. Absolutely. A million percent. But guess what? In my sobriety, I've never felt so powerful. Mm. Amen. Wow. Beautiful. I have choices. I can make choices. Nobody told me that part. Nobody told me that part. Yeah. I remember early on hearing someone with a lot of sobriety talk about that. The lack of power is our dilemma, but there is power available. And And it is not control. And it it is no, no. The, yeah. that the distinction is it's power is is sourced from love yes force is sourced from control you yes. know so that distinction we we need to be empowered my god if we need if there's any time in my life that power is required to live fully expressed in a beautiful way it's now but force needs to be dealt with <laughs> on the other hand. And we get lots of examples in the world of how force is just annihilating, you know, our humanity. So. So true. But we get to be the light. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We choose it. Yeah. 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 We get to, we get to find the light within ourselves and then, let it shine mm-hmm. yeah so I well roberta thank you so much i you know as we um you know bring this begin i i often refer to it as kind of land the plane mm-hmm. <laughs> um is there something in your heart that you'd like to share with someone who might be at that jumping off point right now that they're considering damn, I can't do this one more day and I don't know how to stop. I will always remember that day. Um, And I would just say that I felt like I was hanging off the edge of a cliff and my fingers are digging into the dirt and I'm hanging on for dear life by my fingernails and dirt's falling in my eyes. I'm just looking up. I'm like, I cannot let go. I cannot let go. And then finally, I just can't sustain it any longer. And I drop and I let go of my fingers and I drop an inch and I land on the ground and I look around and there's all these people there. Hey, clapping and saying, we're here for you. You got this. What I built up in my head of what sobriety is or what like the rest of my life, never being able to take a drink or, or, Oh, the unknown being brave enough to let go. I promise you it'll be the best thing that ever happens to you. I promise you. 18 years later, Roberta, you and I are sitting here having this conversation 17, 17 years later. 
Yeah. Don't make me do math. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a journalist. I, 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 I couldn't have imagined this in a I million, know. in a million years. I know. So. I, the same thing too. If I can do it, you know, people say that if I can do it, you can do it. Cause mm -hmm. I did not want to stop drinking. I didn't, I was perfectly fine drinking the rest of my life. And I thought I would go back to drinking. I actually planned my relapse and in, in treatment. And my husband said, I don't have another relapse in me. Mm -hmm. So it might, I know when people who have a lot of sobriety would talk about like, yeah, but it's easy for you. Well, Oh, of course. And I'm like, we were all you, we we're all me you know yeah uh, well if you would be up for it i'd like to do this again absolutely yeah yeah it's like so, a meeting for me so yeah <laughs> me too yeah i'm not going to get to a meeting today me neither um, uh, so this is where two or more are gathered yeah even there if even if it's uh over the you know the data packets that being passed back and forth, it's still the heart, man. That's yeah. how technology is able to, to convey the heart and the soul of, of a person is quite remarkable. And I'm really grateful for that. Yes, I am too. I'm so happy we reconnected. I'm so yeah. happy you reached out to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. The continuation of a beautiful relationship. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Great, it was wonderful. I'm so yeah. happy you're doing so well. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye. Take care, Roberta. Thank you, you so too, much. Greg. Yep. You too, Bye-bye. Bye. I trust you enjoyed this week's episode of Shri Ponya's One Breath Podcast. Roberta, thank you again. I had such a great time. For those of you that are looking for and hoping for a resource, support, someone to walk with and talk to. Join us at Shreeponya at becomingaheart.org every Thursday night for Shreeponya's Healing Circle. That's every Thursday night at 6 p.m. Pacific time. We gather together and spend an hour sharing our stories, our experience, strength, and hope. And I want to take a minute to thank Trevor Hall for his gracious gift for the intro music and the song Blue Sky Mind. It speaks to exactly what we're up to. And then my friend Jay Pinto, who I've known for over 30 years, thank you so much for continuing to support the work that we do and allowing us and gracing us with we breathe the same air. And until next time, peace and love.